Hello, and welcome to this Biblical Education series on the book of Exodus. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Visit us online to learn more about our congregation and the work that we do in Waco, Texas. Thank you, and enjoy. Hey, my friends, it is good to be with you all once again this evening. And it is always a good evening when we have an opportunity to come, to gather, to study, to think, to read, to inquire, to ask questions of the text, and hopefully to walk away with some new lens through which we can see not only uh, God, not only our faith, but the world around us and our role inside of it. My friends, we are continuing our study in the book of Exodus. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we come before you right now with grateful hearts. We are thankful for the many things that we often overlook. Lord, in this time, even as society is opening up around us, we continue to pray for the health, the safety, and the well-being of our friends, our family, our neighbors, our communities. We pray for the healthcare professionals who are taking care of us during this time, for all of those who are working hard in order to... uh, to keep society running around us. Lord, we pray for grace, for protection, and for insight. And in this moment, as we come to look at the text, we ask that you will unsettle us so that we may see things in a new way. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. My friends, we are back in the book of Exodus, and uh, we we began looking at Exodus chapters 1 and 2, examining the ways in which uh, these introductory chapters introduce some key themes that are going to carry us throughout the book of Exodus. And then uh, last week, we looked at particularly the call of Moses, uh, examining um, particularly the hesitation of Moses to answer this call, the unique nuances of Moses' character in these stories, and we recognize the importance of this call narrative, not only for introducing Moses as a prophet, but also for sort of setting the stage or setting the tone for what it means to be a prophet in the Hebrew, in, in the biblical Hebrew tradition, in these Hebrew scriptures. Uh, we noticed that um, many prophets who show up uh, later on, oftentimes their call narratives are going to reflect themes that we see here in the, call, uh, in the call of Moses. And so we examined the call of Moses, one of the key characters. One thing that we noted, however, is that Moses is uh, hesitant. He is uncertain about his ability to speak. And this is significant because the role of a prophet, particularly in this context, Uh, was to be one who spoke. That was their job. And so here we have the calling of someone. He's called to speak the words of God, but yet he feels that he cannot speak. And so the solution to this, the Lord says not only that he will uh, place his words in Moses' mouth, but also that he will give Moses Aaron. Uh, his, his brother who will assist him in this task. And that's one of the things that we see uh, throughout these, um, these texts. I think we can point to other places where we see that even when we encounter the shortcomings, our own human shortcomings, um, the shortcomings of our own capabilities, and we all have limits on our capabilities, that when we come together as a group, that uh, we can begin complementing one another's uh, weaknesses with our own strengths, and in turn, our neighbors can complement our weaknesses with their strengths. That is to say that when we work together, we can accomplish so much more than we would have when we worked alone. And my friends, uh, there's a particularly salient uh, reflection during a time in which we are facing an unprecedented public health crisis, uh, and the outcome of which very much depends upon all of us Uh, exercising our concern, our caution, conducting ourselves in such a way that places the well-being of our communities at the forefront of our thoughts throughout every action that we do. My friends, we are coming together here to look now at the uh, what are often called the Ten Plagues of the Exodus or the Ten Plagues of Egypt, a bit of a misnomer because, in fact, uh, the first nine of these events uh, aren't actually called plagues. They're called marvels or wonders. In fact, it's only the final event here, uh, the final action that is called a plague. These are oftentimes referred to as uh, the miracles, the, the wonders, or the marvels. And we're going to take a look at the ways in which they uh, intersect with the storytelling uh, to drive this narrative forward. And so, my friends, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 5 through 12. We will not be reading all of it uh, this evening, but we will be looking at several highlights. So if you will, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. And here we are going to pick up the story with Moses 
and Aaron. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And we get this iconic line. Let my people go. And my friends, this line is going to echo throughout uh, the following chapters. Um, in fact, that phrase, let my people go, shows up uh, seven times in the following material, in the following chapters. And we noted um, that oftentimes in the biblical stories, numbers are very significant. When things are repeated multiple times, oftentimes that's very significant. We want to uh, keep an eye on that. And number seven is particularly symbolic in the biblical stories. Uh, we recall um, in, Exodus, or in Genesis chapter one, the story of creation in which creation unfolds over the course of seven days. And from that moment on in, in, the, in the pages of the Bible, we often see the number seven signifying completion of some sort. And so here, once again, this is the first of seven instances in which uh, this phrase, let my people go, are going to be, is going to be uttered. And on the seventh instance, we know to cue ourselves in that now this command, let my people go, has been completed. Let my people go here in, uh, in verse one, so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. And I want to pause right here um, to note the reason why this command is being given. Notice that uh, the reason for it is not to set the people free permanently. The reason that's being given is so that they can go and worship. They can go celebrate a festival. And this is one, uh, a, a bit of a tension we see in the storytelling, because sometimes here in the book of Exodus, it's going to say that, that clearly the, uh, the call of God is for the people to be freed um, and to exodus uh, from Egypt permanently. But then other times, the phrasing of it makes it sound like, well, no, they're just going to go uh, to worship. And we see it oscillate between the two in, in the storytelling. So here, let's continue to celebrate a festival to me. But notice where this is going to take place in verse 1, in the wilderness. And we've talked about the symbolism of the wilderness in, this, uh, in, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Genesis. We've seen this throughout the Bible before. Recall that the wilderness is a place that is outside of human civilization. Human civilization sets up these, these systems, these structures, these institutions that tend to uh, govern or um, structure the ways in which we engage with one another and the ways in which we engage with God. Think about when we go to church. Church uh, is oftentimes, you know, the structured institution. There are certain ways that we engage with God at the church. We sing songs together. We do prayers together. We do readings, uh, readings together. There's sort of a structure or formality. Well, when we move outside of human civilization out into the wilderness, we leave those structures behind, which means we no longer have control over who necessarily encounters us or how they encounter us. And in the biblical stories, oftentimes this means that in the wilderness, we tend to encounter an unexpected guest, an uninvited guest, we could say, who is going to show up and work in ways that we are not expecting. People often encounter God in the wilderness, away from the formal structures that tell us how we can and cannot engage the world around us that we associate with human civilization. So notice here the call for them to go out to worship, to celebrate this festival out into the wilderness. Verse two, but Pharaoh said, and this is going to be key, who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now keep in mind, remember the context that we're in. Um, the, the, these stories of, of what we often call the plagues of Egypt uh, are, are, in my mind, very troubling stories in many respects. And we have to remember uh, to place them in their historical context and to recognize the, uh, the cultural distance between those stories in their historical context and our context today. And in the ancient world, remember, many people were either polytheistic or possibly henotheistic. We often uh, are familiar with the terms polytheistic, meaning they worship multiple gods, and monotheistic, meaning they worship one god. Henotheistic or henotheism often meant that they recognized other gods, they believed in multiple gods, but they were going to be loyal to one god or, or one pantheon or something 
of that nature. And so we see this throughout the ancient Mesopotamian world where uh, they believed in multiple gods, but a city may have one patron deity that they are particularly devoted to. And so uh, in, in this ancient worldview, there are many deities out there, and Pharaoh simply says, I don't know who this Lord is. Why should I listen to this God? Now, this is going to set the stage for the plagues of Egypt. And there's this question, why? Did we need these plagues? Why is it that we need these stories that uh, reflect, uh, truth be told, a lot of suffering? Um, why is this even necessary? And when we look at these plagues, 10 of them, over the course of, of the book, of, um, the book of, uh, of Exodus, we see certain refrains keep coming up. So for example, we get this language, let my people go seven times. We also get this refrain of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. We get that 10 times. We also get the refrain of, um, of uh, the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. We get that 10 times as well. But there's one more refrain that stitches all of these uh, plagues together, each of these chapters together. We see the refrain, so that they may know that I am the Lord. You see, this, this uh, section of Exodus opens with a question. Who is the Lord? And remember, the Pharaoh, this is the most powerful individual in the most powerful empire in the world, at least within the, within the conceptual world of the book of Exodus. And here's why this matters. Because in the ancient world, when you went to war with another people group, you didn't just fight them. Your gods fought their gods. There was this sense that your gods go with you, their gods go with them, and the gods that are most powerful give their people victory. And so if, uh, if the Hittites and the Egyptians clash on the battlefield, it's not just a battle between uh, their armies, it is a battle between their deities, and whichever people walks away claiming victory, uh, which happened in the 13th century, um, oftentimes that victory was attributed to their God. We see this same thing in the Bible. How often do we find in Joshua or in Judges? Who is it that's really fighting on behalf of the people of Israel? Well, oftentimes it is God who is doing that. It fits very well in this ancient worldview. So if uh, the Egyptians conquered a people and made them slaves, then it was a clear sign that the Egyptian gods were stronger than those other people's gods. And so why would you need to listen to someone else's gods? And so you see, in this very question, it is already setting up a conflict, not just between Moses and Pharaoh. It is a conflict between God, the creator of this world, and the Egyptian pantheon. Because when we look at this situation, the Hebrew people are enslaved. The Egyptians are the enslavers. And in the ancient world, that would mean that their pantheon was stronger. And so we get this question from Pharaoh. Who, who is your God that I should even pay attention? Who is your, I don't know who the Lord is. And so I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to let Israel go. And you see, my friends, it's this question that starts us on the journey that leads us through all 10 of the plagues. Why do we need all 10? Well, we're going to see repeatedly the Lord saying things like, I will do this so that the Egyptians may know who I am, so that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, uh, so that the Israelites may know that I am the Lord. We see that refrain over and over again. And so as we read these chapters, we want to keep an eye out for statements that are trying to reveal the identity of God. And we're going to come back a little bit more to this idea of conflict between the deities. Let's, let's keep reading, my friends. Here we are, uh, chapter 5, and what we're going to do, we are going to skip down to... Uh, well, actually, here we go. Chapter 5, we just finished verse 2. Let's go to verse 3. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God. Notice this use of pronouns. Our God. Okay, this, this is the God they identify with. Remember, this is a world where different peoples identify with different gods. Okay, uh, where are we? Verse 4. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh continued. Now they are more numerous than the people of the land. And yet you want them to stop working. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. 
let them go and gather straw for themselves, but you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry. Let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier uh, work be laid on them, then they will labor at it and pay no attention to these deceptive words. And this, my friends, is the story that we often refer to as the bricks without straw. Now, we should recognize this is not actually bricks without straw. The, uh, you still need both straw and, and this uh, sort of thick Nile mud to make the bricks. Um, what is changing is that Pharaoh is saying that they will no longer supply the straw. So now uh, the Israelites have to go collect it themselves. This means that now not only are they tasked with making bricks, but now they have to go collect all of their own supplies. So there's more work that's required of them, but they are, uh, but they have to produce the same amounts. Now, watch what happens here um, in verse in in verse ten. <clears throat> so the taskmasters and the supervisors of the people went out and said to the people, "Hear this." Thus says Pharaoh. Does it sound familiar to us? That's how this story opened. It opened with, thus says the Lord. And now Pharaoh is presenting Pharaoh's own word. Thus says Pharaoh. And my friends, I believe that the book of Exodus does this quite intentionally. Because it's going to set up this conflict between the, the God of the Israelites and Pharaoh. Who, who we can say, at least at this point in the story, is presented as sort of the most powerful individual of the most powerful empire in the world. The representative of that power. And we're already starting to see this contrast. And we're going to start to see this, um, this competition almost between the two, this tension between the two. Who is going to prevail? Because remember, in the ancient world, if you conquered another people, then that made it look like your gods were stronger. And so in this scenario, Pharaoh's just asking, who is the Lord? I shouldn't listen. And so Pharaoh's going to go proclaim his own word. Thus says Pharaoh. You see, and so we get this, this uh, parallel setup, which is going to drive the rest of the narrative. Let's scroll down here to, uh, to verse 15. If we flip down, um, in verse 15, then the Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh. So this is after Pharaoh issues the proclamation. The people have to do, uh, they have to produce the same amounts, but they have to do more work to do it. Verse 15, then the Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh and cried. Notice how many times this, this language of crying out is being used here. This is another theme that stitches all these stories together. So we get it at the end of uh, chapter 2, when the Israelites cry out to the Lord, and this is when the Lord hears them and remembers that covenant, and the Lord is now going to intervene. And periodically throughout now, we get the Israelites crying out, crying out, crying out, to the point of where when we hear this language of the Israelites crying out, we already know God hears. That's a key theme throughout the Bible. God hears the voices that go unheard. And so in Exodus 2, they cry out, God hears. And now as we read, when we see them crying out, we can almost assume God is hearing. The Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh and they cried. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. Look how your servants are beaten. You are unjust to your own people. He said, you are lazy. This is Pharaoh speaking. You are, um, you are lazy, lazy. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work for no straw shall be given to you, but you shall still deliver the same number of bricks. The Israelite supervisors saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you shall not lessen your daily number of bricks. As they left Pharaoh, they came upon Moses and Aaron, who were waiting to meet them. And they said to them, the Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into bad odor with Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Notice what happens here, okay? Moses uh, and Aaron show up, they proclaim this message, and things go south, essentially. And the, the people turn on, on and start blaming Moses and Aaron. And this is going to be a pattern that we are going to see uh, throughout many parts of the narratives in the chapters that follow. And so, in turn, the people turn on, uh, on Moses and Aaron, and so now Moses um, turns uh, to the Lord. Then the, Moses turned again to the Lord and said, this is in verse 22, O Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why, do you, why did you ever send me? 
since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated this people and you, get this, you have done nothing at all to deliver your people. That is a, uh, uh, a very strong accusation. But in, in the context of this history, uh, I think one that is not uh, unjustified. And this is an amazing thing. It opens up uh, this aspect of what it means to be a prophet in this Hebrew tradition. Because we ha- oftentimes when we think of prophets, um, you know, we think of someone who speaks the word of the Lord, someone who proclaims the word of the Lord. So the prophet in some ways stands between God and the people and delivers the message from God to the people. But we also have to remember that the prophet also facilitates communication in the other direction. That is to say that the job of the prophet is not just to speak God's word to the people, but also to, uh, to or is not just to speak to people on behalf of God. The job of the prophet is also to speak to God on behalf of the people. That's one of the things it means to be a prophet. You're not just speaking at people, you are praying on their behalf. Think about Amos. Think about Jeremiah. There, there are so many examples. In, in Amos 7, uh, well, yeah, in Amos chapter 7, when Amos gets this vision of, um, of destruction. And what does Amos say when he sees the vision of destruction? He says, Lord, stop, don't do it. No, no. The, 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 Jacob is so small, he can't survive. And the Lord relents. And it's like Amos standing before God on behalf of the people and saying, no, 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 just give us, give us a chance. Give us a chance. And we see Moses do the same thing on several occasions. And so here, once again, the role of the prophet. And we want to think about that. You know, uh, a, a lot of times in, in modern American Christianity, we use this language of speaking prophetically. And we use this language of preaching prophetically sometimes when, when, when you study preaching. What does that look like? What does it mean? And I think one thing that we should not do is disconnect prophetic speech from prophetic prayer because the, the two tend to come hand in hand in these stories. Let's continue here, my friends. Chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand, he will let them go. By a mighty hand, he will drive them out of this land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Okay, now let's pause for a second here. Remember the question that these stories opened with. Pharaoh saying, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should listen? And so we're going to take note how often throughout these stories, we're going to get this proclamation of God saying, this is who I am. You asked, I'll answer. I am the Lord. Verse three, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Uh, We could say in, in Hebrew, El Shaddai, but my name is the Lord. And remember, we talked last week about how uh, the, the word God in Hebrew, El or Elohim, is a title. But when we see in the text here this, this word Lord in all capital letters, um, that is the name of God. Uh, and in, in uh, the Hebrew, uh, tradi- in many Hebrew uh, reading traditions, that name is considered too holy to pass upon our lips. And so... Um, Oftentimes in, in various Hebrew reading traditions, instead of pronouncing the name of God, uh, you would say either Adonai, which means my Lord, or Hashem, which means the name. And so in many of our English translations, they follow that tradition by presenting the name of God using the word Lord in all capital letters. That's what we get here. And so remember, this is significant. Names are significant in the biblical stories. And here, once again, the Lord is, you asked, who am I? The Lord is proclaiming God's name in this story. Verse four or verse three, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Now keep in mind this word covenant here, um, many times in our modern conceptions, we think of promises, something of that nature, and, and there is an element of promise there. But a covenant in the ancient world at its most basic level is a treaty. And oftentimes it is a treaty made between different people groups. Remember in the ancient world, people are constantly trying to conquer one another, constantly trying to, we could say, 
enslave one another. And so you had to make very strategic treaties in order to, uh, to keep your people safe. And these treaties oftentimes shifted. Um, but there is this idea that when you make a treaty with someone, you're not supposed to break it. Okay, which means when you commit to something, when you commit to this relationship with someone, you stick by it. Now, they did get broken in the ancient world all the time. It happens. But one of the things that we find here is this affirmation of the Lord throughout the biblical story that God does not break his end of the bargain. Oftentimes we get this language of, uh, of chesed, this uh, translated in English as the, um, the loving kindness or the... the uh, um, yeah, like the loving kindness of the Lord. We get it in Psalm 136, for example, when it's telling the story in part, uh, this story, and it, it, the refrain throughout the entire psalm is, for his love endures forever, uh, for God's chesed endures forever. Um, the word chesed is, has this idea of loyalty. Remember, in, in, in our modern uh, uh, American conception, you can love someone without necessarily having a loyalty to them. Love can be conceived of as temporary in, in, uh, many, in many of our modern conceptions. But this idea of chesed is not temporary. This, this is a permanent thing. God makes the promise. God makes the covenant. God's going to stick by it. And we see that all throughout the book of Genesis. We see that um, in Genesis 15 when the Lord takes on the responsibility to fulfill the covenant, to see it through. And now here, once again, God hears the people and he remembers that covenant and he's going to see it through. Generations later, generations later, verse six, say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Okay, so we get this, this I am the Lord language, and I want you to, to keep an eye on this because in verses six through eight, God is going to identify uh, seven things that God does. There are seven verbs that are used here to frame how God relates to the people. Watch this. I am the Lord. I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from, uh, from slavery, uh, deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty axe of judgment. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as possession. There's the number seven. Again, these seven verbs where God says, this is what I am going to do for you. And we have mentioned before that the number seven is symbolic of completion. God is going to fulfill this. God is going to complete this. And notice, buried in the middle of this identification of who God is, okay, um, of identifying God based upon the actions that God is going to do, we get, this, uh, we get this, this phrase, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You will know. How did the story open? It opens with a question. Who is the Lord? You want to ask who is the Lord? Here are seven statements about, who God, about what God is going to do and how God is identified by God's actions. God is a God who, um, God is a God who frees. God is a God who redeems. God is a God who, who takes, uh, takes others as his own people and becomes their God. And that's a phrase that shows up throughout Torah. I will, uh, I will be your God. You will be my people. And that's what God creates here throughout uh, Torah. Is creates a people of God, in essence. I will bring you to the place where I promised. I will give it to you. God is a God who fulfills God's promises. Story opens, who is the Lord? And now we're already seeing it unfolding, God's revelation of who God is. Verse 9, Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. And there may be a lot of profound wisdom in that verse about the power that a broken spirit can have over us sometimes. The power that a broken spirit can have over what we hear, how we hear it, whether or not we receive it. What unfolds in the following chapters are what are often called the nine marbles, or what we refer to them as the ten plagues um, in chapters uh, seven through um, 
7 through 11 and into 12. <clears throat> but um, the word plague doesn't actually show up for what takes place here uh, until the very last one. Uh, the, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, that is referred to as a plague. But the first uh, nine um, events to take place are referred to uh, usually as marvels of some sort. And, and there's this question, why do we need 10 of them? Like, what holds these all together? There's uh, not living in the ancient world. Um, they can seem a little bit random. So you get the plague of blood. That's What is that all about? The plague of frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Um, why do we need 10? We know the, ten, the number 10 is significant uh, in, in the storytelling of the book of Exodus. Um, 10 times the text tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 10 times the text tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 10 plagues or uh, 10, 10 events are going to take place. Nine marvels and one plague. Um, and then, of course, uh, when they go to Sinai after, after freedom, they go to Sinai and that's where they receive uh, the, the, the Torah. And it, it kind of opens with these 10 commandments that we often call them. And the thing we have to, there, there are a few things we have to recognize. One, these, uh, the first nine of these marvels actually take place in cycles of three. You see, so the first plague in each cycle takes place at the Nile River. And the Nile River is highly symbolic. It's highly symbolic for, for Egypt. This was the lifeblood of Egypt. This is the, the source of Egyptian life, the source of their fertility, the, the source of, of their natural strength. And so in each cycle, the plague begins there at the Nile. And this is, I think, rather significant. Um, because what we find throughout these 10 plagues is there is this conflict emerging. There is this battle taking place. Remember, in the ancient world, when two peoples went to war, it wasn't just the two peoples, it was their gods as well. And so the question is, which god can give victory? Which god is stronger? And so now we have a story where there is a group of slaves who are enslaved in Egypt, the Egyptian empire in the thought world of the book of Exodus, the most powerful empire in the world. That clearly must mean that the Egyptian pantheon, the Egyptian gods, are stronger than the God of the Israelites, the God that we have read about thus far in the book of Genesis and Exodus, the creator of this world. And what we find is in each case, in each of these marvels, God exercises power over an element of Egyptian nature. And remember, a lot of gods in the ancient world, that's how they exhibited their power was over an element of nature. So the Nile River, there is a God of the Nile. Uh, in the Egyptian pantheon. And now the Lord of the Israelites is demonstrating that the God of the Nile cannot hold a candle to the creator of this world. The, uh, the, um, uh, the second plague, the plague of frogs, uh, and, and the goddess of fertility, uh, Haket, in, uh, in the Egyptian pantheon, oftentimes uh, presented um, with the head of a frog, as a frog, things like that. Well, you know what? That goddess could not stop the creator of this world, the God of the, the Israelites, from exhibiting the power over that goddess's domain. And we can go on. The god of the earth, Geb. We could uh, look at the different deities in the Egyptian pantheon as the god of the Hebrews goes point by point and shows that that god, that, that, that the creator of this world is more powerful than the Egyptian pantheon. This is a battle between the gods. This is an epic showdown. Uh, the Egyptians have a god of the sun. And you know what? The god of the sun could not stop the god of the Hebrew people from exhibiting, from exercising his power over the sun. Because who is the supreme power inside of this world? Who is the supreme authority inside of this world? In the book of Exodus, there is only one. And it is the Lord, the God of the Israelites, the creator of heaven and earth. And no pantheon, no matter how strong of an empire they may have, will ever be able to hold a god to this creator. Or will ever be able to hold a light to this, uh, to this creator god. That's what we see throughout the ten plagues. A battle between the gods. And every single time, there is one god that is going to come out on top. Every single time, there is one god that is going to be proven uh, to, to be exalted above all others. The god of the Israelites. The creator of this world. And that, my friends, is one of the reasons why I, I think we have ten plagues here unfolding. It's because God goes point by point through these different areas of nature where Egyptian gods are supposed to have control and power and demonstrates that the Lord God of the Hebrews is the true authority to, with whom they should be concerned. And periodically throughout these stories, it's going to stop and tell us. The Lord says that he will do this 
so that the Egyptians may know that, that God is the Lord. How did the story open? Pharaoh asking, who is the Lord that I should, that I should leave and listen? I don't know the Lord as any God. Pharaoh knows many gods. The Lord isn't one. Well, throughout these stories, we get an unfolding of who God is. And so, when, when these plagues begin at the Nile, uh, the, the first plague, the fourth plague, and the seventh plague. So, the first plague of each cycle begins at the Nile. It's pronounced to Pharaoh at the Nile. This is the life, the heart of, um, of Egypt, where the God of the Hebrews, the, the slave people, is able to exercise power. In the second plague in each cycle, the, 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 uh, the plague now takes, or the marvel takes place in the palace with Pharaoh. So it moves from the heart of Egypt to the heart of Pharaoh's power, the palace, the symbol of power. And so it's showing in each cycle, well, you know what? The God of this group of slaves can exercise power and dominion in the heart of Egypt and in the heart of Pharaoh's place of power, in the heart of Pharaoh's palace. Remember, this, uh, this is going to culminate in, in, a, in a showdown, not just between the God of the Israelites and the Egyptian pantheon, a showdown between the God of the Israelites and Pharaoh himself. The third plague in each cycle, so plagues three, six, and nine, always begin with a gesture, but no warning. Pharaoh can't even see it coming. This God of, of, of a small group of, of oppressed slaves is, is so powerful that Pharaoh, the most powerful individual in the most powerful empire with the most powerful pantheon in the world, can't even see it coming. And so we see this, this cycle repeat three times, beginning at the Nile, moving into the palace, and then Pharaoh getting completely blindsided. And we see throughout this storytelling, there's a purpose to it. It repeatedly says, so that you will know that I am the Lord, or so that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, so that Pharaoh may know that I am the Lord. Always answering that question that we opened with in the beginning of chapter 5. Who is the Lord? Let's take a look at chapter 7 here. We want to see some of the ways in which this unfolds. Uh, we won't read, read every one of, the, um, of these marvels, uh, but I want to take a look at chapter 7. It says in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Fascinating concept. We'll leave that aside for now. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. <coughs> you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to tell the Israelites, Go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's hearts, and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, I will lay my hand upon Egypt and bring my people, the Israelites, company by company out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgments. The Egyptians shall know, and here's that phrase, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Throughout these stories, it's repeatedly telling us there's a purpose to this so that the Egyptians will know who the Lord is, so that the Israelites will know who the Lord is, so that the people will know who the Lord is. Verse, uh, verse 8, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. And we remember uh, last week talking about the call of Moses when Moses is given this sign that, that Moses can perform. So in verse 10, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes. And, and, and I want to pause there because here's where we're seeing from the very beginning, this is a, is a battle between the gods. This is a battle over power in that sense. And when, uh, when, a, when a deity or a god performs a sign or, or a marvel or a wonder, uh, that demonstrates the extent of their power. And you should pay attention to that when you are in another god's realm. This is, this is kind of how the ancient world works. And so now here in Egypt, the god of the Hebrews performs this wonder, this, this marvel. Aaron throws down the stake, this, the staff, and it becomes a snake. But all the other magi magicians can do it as well. So the Egyptians still have their gods there to protect them, right? 
each one threw down the staff. They became snakes. But get this. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. You see, even though they were performing the same thing, there's still this signaling that there is one God that's going to be stronger than the others in this story. And we see this echo throughout, uh, throughout the story. So when we keep reading, <coughs> we see this, this uh, battle, so to speak, taking place between the, uh, Moses and Aaron and uh, Egyptians, the Egyptian uh, magicians and sorcerers. And we see in this battle, there's this, there's this uh, battle taking place, not just between them, but between the gods. Which God really has power in this world? Then the Lord said to Moses, this is in verse 14, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refused to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand by at the river bank to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was turned into a snake. Say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you to say, let my people go. There we get that phrase again. It's going to show up seven times throughout these stories. And recall, this is taking place in the Nile. This is the heart of Egypt. This is a highly symbolic place. This is the life force of Egypt. If there's any place where the Egyptian God should have power, it should be here over the Nile. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. There's that phrase again. You're going to know. You're going to learn. You asked, you will get your answer. See with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. The fish in the river shall die, the river itself shall stink, and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch it out, uh, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over its rivers, canals, and its ponds, and all its pools and waters, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the whole land of Egypt. This is, uh, you know, a, a really um, stunning display of divine power in someone else's land. But look what happens in verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, you see, once again, uh, you know, Aaron and Moses show up. Uh, the Lord, the God of the Israelites, the Hebrews, uh, performs this this amazing marvel, demonstrating his power. But then uh, Pharaoh's Egyptian, uh, Pharaoh's magicians can do the same thing. And so, well, you know what? Our gods can go toe to toe with your God, right? And we see this. Uh, we we see this repeated. But at some point in this story, there. Um, the Egyptian magicians are not going to be able to keep up. And they're going to turn to Pharaoh and say, this is the hand of God. We can't, we can't keep up with this. There is a little bit of humor in this story, though. There, there's a little bit of a joke. Notice that, uh, you know, you would think in the ancient world, turning all the water to blood would be a really bad thing. And, and it is. Um, because if you don't have water, uh, it's, it's a bad thing. Um, you, you tend not to survive very long. And so, uh, Moses and Aaron show up turn all the water to blood. And then Pharaoh's magicians show up and do the same thing. And so Pharaoh's magicians actually make the situation worse. Like you would think if they were trying to help Pharaoh and the people out, they would turn the blood back to water. But we see this, that every time they're trying to keep up with the God of the Israelites and they end up making the plague worse. Uh, so think about um, the, the next plague, the plague of frogs there in, uh, I think we're down in chapter eight. Okay. Uh, in verse seven, the magician, uh, Aaron and Moses, um, you know, stretch out, Aaron stretches out his hand over the waters. The frogs come up and cover the land of Egypt. Verse seven, but the magicians did the same and they brought frogs up on the land of Egypt also. And so they just made it worse. And this shows up time and time again. Um, we see later on in that same chapter in verse 18, this is when uh, after Moses and Aaron produced the gnats. And in verse 18, now the magicians try to produce gnats by their secret arts, but they could not. And so they come to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was still hardened and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Each of these stories, uh, as they unfold, there's this emphasis on knowing the Lord because every time the Lord is going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with a deity or a realm of nature that the gods of Egypt are supposed to control on their home turf. And we see that there is only one God in this world that is sovereign over all things. And that's the creator of heaven and earth. 
And uh, partway through this story here in chapter 8, um, we get a, a new motif introduced where God actually starts distinguishing between the Israelites and the Egyptians when these calamities uh, fall upon them. Oftentimes, when I uh, speak with my students, um, when we're talking about these plagues, you know, I, I like to ask them, which of the plagues would you most be willing to endure? And, you know, it's kind of fun to talk through what students are willing to endure and not willing to endure. But then I ask, which of, the, which of these uh, marvels or plagues uh, is most troubling? And without a doubt, it's the last one. It's the, uh, the final plague, the plague of the firstborn or the death of the firstborn. And we see this um, announced here in chapter 11. And this, you know, I, I want to talk, take a moment just to recognize that, uh, that I, I, I'm hesitant to clean up, to try to clean up this story for modern years too much because it is so shocking. But there, there, I think there's a point to, to the shock here. If we flip over to chapter 10 and verse 28, it says, Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care that you do not see my face again, for on the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, just as you say, I will never see your face again. So we, we get this, this image of Pharaoh sending away the prophets. Do not ever appear before me um, or I will kill you. And Moses says, as you wish. And by the way, sending away the prophet, refusing to listen to the prophet throughout the Hebrew tradition doesn't always go well. Because when we are unwilling to listen to the voices that tell us we need to change, usually at that point we lock ourselves in on that path. If we are unwilling to listen to people who call us to change, then usually we won't change. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you away. Tell the people that every man who, who is to ask his neighbor and every woman to ask her neighbor for objects of silver and gold. And when we go down to um, verse 4, it says, Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the livestock then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt. It's a very troubling plague, but it brings us full circle. Remember how this story began in Exodus chapter 1. It began with Pharaoh calling for the death of the Israelite children, and a great cry rose up. And now here, God is bringing the same thing that Pharaoh had done to others, unto Pharaoh in Egypt. Now it's the Egyptians who will issue out that loud cry. God doesn't just go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Egyptian pantheon. God goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh himself. The story opens with Pharaoh trying to act like the God over life and death in the life of these Israelites. The story opens with Pharaoh uh, trying to take control over something that only God gives life, and something that only God should take. And so here, we see these actions return upon Pharaoh's own head, in some sense. And, and this shows up a lot in, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, it doesn't necessarily uh, address or absolve or resolve any of the ethical questions we may have or theological questions we have about it, but there are many times in the Bible when uh, pronouncements of judgment are framed as God bringing someone else's actions back upon them. So the actions that we do to others, God returns to us. The actions that others do, God will return unto them. And so here, once again, we get a form of this. The story opens with Pharaoh doing this to the Israelites. And it's going to close with God bringing it back upon Pharaoh himself. This event leads to 
the Passover, which uh, there, there's substantive material in the chapters to follow that talk about what the Passover is supposed to look like, the significance of it, the importance of it. This is a family holiday, uh, a family festival, so to speak, when, when they tell the story of what God had done. They tell the story of God's actions of showing up in Egypt, taking a group of slaves and turning them into a people. And it's supposed to be a remembrance for all generations to pass on the memory of who God is through God's actions. And that connects back to that central theme. Who is the Lord? Well, the Lord goes toe-to-toe with each of the gods in the most powerful pantheon of the most powerful empire in the world and comes out victorious every single time. Because at the end of the day, there is only one who is sovereign over all things, and that's the creator of heaven and earth. After, after this event, after the Passover, uh, Pharaoh sends the people out, and we get here in, um, in chapter 12, uh, after the, the story of, um, of the destroyer coming, or I'm sorry, in chapter 13, after the, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, uh, Pharaoh lets the people go there in chapter 13. Um, and it tells us in verse 17 that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. Uh, because there's this, this fear. If the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt, want to go back. And we get that language a lot throughout the rest of the Torah, the people saying we were better off in Egypt. Um, and so the Lord brings them a roundabout way towards uh, what we often call the Red Sea. Now, it's important to recognize that um, the, the Hebrew here actually reads uh, Yom Suf, the, the, the Sea of Reeds. It's not actually the Red Sea. Uh, we get the Red Sea from some Greek translations of this text, because we're not exactly sure where the Sea of Reeds is. Um, But the Lord brings them around here, and this is where they get trapped. And Pharaoh comes out after them once again. And the Lord fights one more battle on their behalf, ultimately bringing them safely through the Reed Sea and on the other side. And the story's going to continue where the Lord is going to lead them to Mount Sinai where the Lord will give a covenant or establish his covenant with them. And this opens with the Ten Commandments, which, my friends, is where we will turn to when we return in this study of the book of Exodus. I hope that as we think and reflect upon, uh, upon these stories, as we think and reflect upon um, uh, the book of Exodus as a whole, that it shapes, informs, influences, and adjusts the way that we may view the world around us the way that we view our place inside of the world, and the way that we view power in this world. Because many people claim absolute power. Many people claim to worship deities with absolute power. But there is only one creator of heaven and earth. There is only one who is sovereign over all life and all death. And that is the one that, uh, that is proclaimed throughout this story. My friends, may you go in peace. May you go in blessings. May you go forth from here and speak words of life into the world around you. Amen.